Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1 Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. There's a billionaire who you've probably heard of if you're a sports fan. He grew up in Missouri in the 1950s. He went to the University of Missouri. And then one time when he was on vacation in Aspen, he met Ann Walton, one of the heirs to the Walmart fortune. They married. He came into a whole bunch of money. And about half a century later, that guy, Stan Kroenke, did something that ticked people off across the Midwest. He moved the football team that he bought, the St. Louis Rams, to Los Angeles. And he said that part of the reason, and I'm paraphrasing here, these are my words, not his, was the economy stupid. While this drama was all happening, Brian Feldman was working at his job at a think tank in D.C. called the New America Foundation. And to him, this all felt like part of a much bigger story. In the last 30 to 40 years, we've seen changes from politicians who have also taken away talent and growth and commerce from cities like St. Louis. Feldman had been studying the coming apart of the coasts and the heartland, why economic disparities have grown, and why when you look for pools of money for new ideas, for new businesses, they are mostly concentrated on the coasts. We talked to him a few months back, before Trump won the election, But in some ways, his ideas are even more relevant now, since the heartland-coastal divide feels starker. What Feldman discovered was this. The narrative we hear about manufacturing and offshoring being at the root of the problem, that just did not seem right. If we go back and we look at, say, 1980, something really interesting happens. In St. Louis, for instance, one in five people were still working in professional service jobs like finance or pharmaceuticals. The per capita income of St. Louis was 89% that of New York, for instance. Okay, so people are making a little more money in New York, but almost the same. Exactly, almost the same. And so despite all of the changes in manufacturing, St. Louis is still doing pretty great. And in many ways, it's almost poised to become this world-class city. So this is after and despite all of this loss of manufacturing. But then today, if we look at the current state of St. Louis, St. Louis is still a really great city, but the number of Fortune 500 companies has declined to nine. The per capita income of St. Louis has decreased by 10% to 79% that of New York. I asked Feldman what happened, what pulled New York away from St. Louis economically. He says the answer lies in the Gilded Age, when just a few rich guys owned a whole lot of the U.S. There was a surge in populism, and that spurred people like Teddy Roosevelt to argue that fat cats, that big deal corporations, which were often called trusts, shouldn't be allowed to consolidate so much power. That led to antitrust laws and an argument that might sound familiar if you think about the rhetoric of the 2016 election. The problem with a monopoly or a business 
who amasses so much power is twofold. The first is that they can use their size to rub elbows with government, ask for special favors, and as a result, other entrepreneurs who are trying to enter the market don't have the chance or the opportunity. So by breaking up the trust, the first thing that happens is more individuals are granted the opportunity to enter a market. And this we see in St. Louis around 1900s, 1910, for instance. At this time, St. Louis is flourishing. The World's Fair is held there. The first Olympics in America is held there. And it's really this cultural and commercial hub. Hmm. Well, and if you think about uh, the mid-20th century, and, and you pointed this out in an article you wrote in The Atlantic, cities across the Midwest were economic powerhouses. Exactly. It's actually sort of fascinating when we look at the 1950s and 1960s, a lot of advertisers are trying to focus their attention on this entire region because this is the home of a really strong, really robust middle class. You have to remember during the 1950s and 1960s, this is the rise of refrigerated meals. This is the rise of you know consumer products. And where the majority of all those people are living is in the Midwest. So there's all of these really interesting developments happening there in St. Louis, for instance, Ralston Purina is based there, huge pet food manufacturer, Budweiser, of course. Um, so there's a lot of economic vitality and excitement. Yeah, well, and you talk about brain trusts forming all throughout the region. And one of those brain trusts, interestingly, is in advertising. That's right. And um, the advertising industry is what I focus on mainly in my article for two reasons. I think symbolically, it's fantastic because advertising is a cultural art in some sense. Um, and in St. Louis, for instance, there's a lot of really interesting lore of interesting fun fact is that the modern version of Santa Claus was actually created by a St. Louis advertising firm called Darcy, huh. whose client was Coca-Cola. And the, right, go figure. Of and course, um, Coca Cola <laughs> created Santa Claus. Who else? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's supposedly a conspiracy theory out there. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but the uh, red of Santa Claus's jacket is the same red <laughs> as the Coca Cola red. But um, it's unclear whether that's an urban legend or not. But the larger sort of point, too, is. So where there is advertising, advertising is going to attract tons of creative people who are designers, who are production assistants. And so we sort of see this convergence of art and culture. But the second bigger point and what is so fantastic about advertising is the very nature of advertising itself is a business whose role is to sell products for other companies. And so many ways the advertising community serves as a proxy for all of the other businesses that are rooted in St. Louis and who depend on the advertising industry to sell and to distribute and to market their products. Okay, and then explain to me what happened. How did cities that went from being some of the most vital in the country start to, not in all cases, but in some cases, feel like the New Yorks and the San Francisco's and the Boston's and the DC's and whatever were like pulling away and leaving them to behind to some degree. 
Right. So this is a really, really quiet change that happens around the 1960s and the 1970s. So what we've seen before is that originally we had in place policies and economic laws that look to distribute opportunity. And for that reason, the market, because it is made by people, was seen as a political type of object or entity. But in the 1960s and 1970s, there's a little flipping of policy levers, if you Hmm. will. And what happens is that people start to say, no, 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 no. The market is not political, but it's mechanical. It's natural that a company is going to get larger and we should be less concerned about concentrations of power or control. And so we have this really big change of thinking as the first key. The second key is there's a guy named Robert Bork. He's a Ah, professor. Is this Uh Robert Bork, the guy who tried to get on the Supreme Court and things didn't quite work out and it was Mm -hmm. a terrible, bloody mess? Mm -hmm. Yes, this same exact Robert Bork completely changes how we enforce and interpret the antitrust laws. And so instead of it being about distribution of opportunity, as we've mentioned before, now it's about what's going to be the most efficient, for instance. And what we see happening is we start to see a lot of acceptance of mergers and acquisitions, despite the size of a business becoming so large that it displaces all of the other businesses or commerce that may be rooted in a local community. Boeing acquires McDonnell Douglas, which was headquartered in St. Louis. In 2001, Nestle acquires Purina. And Nestle is from Switzerland. So, I mean, this mm-hmm. is not, this is, mm-hmm. has no borders. Absolutely no borders. And even Anheuser-Busch, which was acquired around uh, 2008, I believe, that was acquired by InBev, which is also an international company. And so this really devastates a local community for a couple of reasons. The first is that when two companies combine or merge, there is inevitably a shedding and a loss of jobs. And so people are displaced. And instead of the individuals who were rooted in the town or city or community going out into the market and giving it all they got, what happens is an outside interest or an absentee owner sort of imposes its will on that community and is able to dictate what can or cannot happen. So, of course, we saw the rise of populism in the wake of the Gilded Age uh, in the late 19th century, and you had all these monopolists, and then populists come in and say, we've got to break up this power. And for whatever else has been said about Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders and all the things that they do not have in common, uh, one thing that that many people feel like they've tapped into is some degree of populism. And I wonder if there's going to be another wave of anger that's going to bring back to certain cities that uh, push for innovation and that feeling that, you know, we're just not going to let New York and San Francisco uh, control things anymore. I think we're definitely starting to see that. And there's really been this bubbling of, you know, sort of anger that's emerged coast to coast, but especially in the Midwest. Um, I think the thing right now is that people have this anger, but they're not exactly sure how to best direct it or channel it. And if we look back at 
the populace and how they were channeling and directing their anger, their anger was a result of large concentrations of power that they felt sort of tamped down the communities of which they were part. And just because we be, are enmeshed in all of these interdependent sort of corporate businesses or large governments or whatever it may be, despite the fact of interdependence, it doesn't necessarily mean independence because that individual isn't the one who's exercising his or her right whether to join a community or not. Right. And so I think we are starting to see a lot of outrage and anger, but it's a matter of how to best channel it and direct it. And so looking at our history, if we're able to break things up and make them a bit more manageable and locate them and localize them, then there is a much greater chance and opportunity that individuals will feel like they aren't being taken for a ride and instead have that sense of freedom and control that many people feel are, is slipping through their hands. Brian Feldman is a researcher reporter with the New America Foundation and the author of the article, How America's Coastal Cities Left the Heartland Behind, which we will link to at innovationhub.org. Brian, thank you so much. Thanks. It was great chatting. We've got more from Brian on our website, including why he thinks that even crazy housing prices on the coast may not be enough to push new entrepreneurs into more affordable cities. Coming up, why cities should invest in festivals, not football stadiums. Increasingly, people are buying experiences, and so you don't necessarily have people spending money on actual objects. And psychologists are saying that it's actually a more healthy thing to invest in experiences rather than just kind of cultural goods. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. When you think about what draws you to a city, there are things that are going to make you want to get out your camera, you know, the Louvre, the Sydney Opera House, Fenway Park. But other big draws are more experiential. Listening to jazz in Monterey or looking for the next Bob Dylan at the Newport Folk Festival. Jonathan Wynn says that if cities want to get the most bang for their buck and really elevate their status, they will not build a new building. They will put up a tent, they'll reserve that row of porta potties, and they'll have some sort of festival. Wynn is an assistant professor of urban and cultural sociology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's the author of the book Music City and the op-ed, Why Cities Should Stop Building Museums and Focus on Festivals. We'll link to it on our website, innovationhub.org. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I'll, I'll just put that question to you. Why should cities stop building museums uh, and really focus on festivals instead? Well, I think it's more of a pause. Uh, over the last 20 years or so, we've built uh, over 100 sports stadiums and countless performing arts museums and performance facilities. And while I think that all of those things are great, for the most part, that building has greatly outpaced demand and strained public resources. Hmm. And so my argument is, is that you should use festivals as a way to build temporary events that might be replicated over a course of a series of years and then have them be 
using cultural resources that are already available, possibly reinforcing them as the years go on, and at the same time being more responsive to the local community and more open to change over time. What is the upside to festivals? I mean, maybe you can point to one or two that you've seen evolve and that you've seen change the city maybe that they're in. Well, I think that the three cities that I looked at were Newport, uh, Austin, Texas, and Nashville, Tennessee. And all three of those are excellent examples of how short-term events have been able to nurture resources, both uh, spatial resources, but also kind of human capital resources. So the people who are talent, uh, who are able to perform on stage and work off stage. And those are excellent examples, in my opinion. And certainly there's uh, both in the case of Nashville and Austin, Texas, you've seen uh, South by Southwest and the Country Music Association's CMA Fest as opportunities to bring in lots of tourists and lots of attention, lots of media buy-in, and then be able to lay that back onto the population at large. Mm -hmm. And so a good example is the CMA Fest collecting a lot of money and then donating all that money back into music education in their local schools. Another example is South by Southwest. You have the festival partnering with the Health Alliance for Austin Musicians, which provides health care for musicians that are usually, for the most part, being uh, below the poverty line or having struggling to pay, for example, for quality health care. What does a city look like, and it could be in the U.S. or anywhere in the world, that is really leveraging its festivals in an interesting way? The city that got me started in in this research is Borlang, Sweden, and it was a very small 30,000-person city. Hmm. And uh, I walked up to the festival itself. I was performing with a band that night, and it was surrounded by a blue plastic tarp. And we walked up to the festival, and they opened up the gate. And as they opened up the gate, we walked into the town square. And there we saw the ice cream parlor. We saw the eyeglass place. We saw the bank. We saw the sushi place. We saw the all the kind of the downtown. And I thought to myself, how amazing is it that a, a town of 30,000 residents was able to offer itself up for four days to a bunch of young, it turned out to be goth kids, coming to a music festival for four days. Did you see a lot of people in town kind of you know, just like, you know, average citizens kind of looking askance at the uh, goth kids who had descended on the on the city for this, like, one big event a year? Here's the thing. Not a, <laughs> not a single one. I talked to people who were working there, and, and they certainly were wide-eyed and surprised. But I asked them, where, where, where are all the locals? And they told me they go stay with friends for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> they rent out their houses because it's a good time to rent your house, I'm sure. That is exactly right. Yeah. So does this mean, I'm taking this to mean you were in a goth band or are in a goth band? <laughs> it was called the Peace and Love Festival, and actually it was not a full goth festival. It turned to have a wider palette. My girlfriend at the time and now my wife was in a hip-hop band, and so we were performing at 1 o'clock at one of these venues in the town. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want anybody to Google the goth professor from UMass Amherst. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, museums and stadiums and all that permanent stuff. 
why is it a bad investment for a city? Because in some ways you would think it would be a great investment to build something that draws people not just, you know, one week a year, two weeks a year, but every single day of the year. For the most part, I think you're right. I think that the problem is, is that they are often leveraged and uh, exploiting the local community as far as uh, getting benefits to a very small number of people, a small subsection of the population. I've come from Buffalo, New York, and where we had the owner of the Buffalo Bills who lived actually in Detroit, right? And so he profited greatly off of the Buffalo Bills. Uh, and at the same time, he was not even a local and I certainly think that museums are are not necessarily the same thing, but you got to think about festivals. And I think that, and really, I'm thinking about local festivals that are deeply tied and connected to their community. I'm not thinking about Lollapalooza, for example, being in Chicago, but then also having a branch Lollapalooza at in Berlin that is not necessarily connected to the local culture uh, in the same way. Now, you're talking to me from uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, and I know you've got a blues festival there. But if you're not an artist performing, if you're not a local business that makes a good chunk of your money during that festival, is there a way that you feel the lasting impact and feel like you're being helped? Well, there's two things I would say to that. The first thing is that increasingly people are buying experiences. And so you don't necessarily have people spending money on actual objects. And mm. psychologists are saying that it's actually a more healthy thing to invest in experiences rather than just kind of cultural goods like a CD. Right. So the people who are coming in and and purchasing an, a, an experience, and certainly there are also free festivals that are available too, that experiences actually are kind of healthy psychological experiences. But the second thing is uh, that I would say is that in my book, I talk about four kinds of resources that are exploited and then reinforced through festivalization. The first one is economic, and that certainly is an easy sell. Uh, you see direct visitor impacts in hotels and uh, airline tickets right. and people going to restaurants and buying dinner. But there's also spatial resources that are exploited. So uh, the upkeep of a park, for example, the use of a street, those are all spatial resources that can be exploited or also used. There's also the talent. So you have people who are artists or people who are putting up the tents local mm -hmm. vendors who are at those stalls those are people who are making you know benefiting from this event but then also symbolic resources as well so springfield is not necessarily a place that is on the tip of people's tongues when thinking about culture and music and yet this festival is doing a great job in putting an imprint on people's minds about springfield as being a cultural site do you think we are, you kind of alluded to this, do you think we are in an era of moving away from tangible stuff to the experience that, that maybe what you're saying about the movement away from museums and sports stadiums to festivals wouldn't have been true in an earlier time, but, but people are sort of mentally shifting to a place where that's what they want, the, the festival experience? Well, I certainly grew up opening up an LP and reading the liner notes and pouring over the lyrics of a song yeah. and then slowly moving to a tape and then still buying a CD mm -hmm. and holding it in my hands and feeling it. And that now that there's we live in a digital age where I'm downloading music all the time, there's a loss there and a changed relationship with music. And so I certainly found myself, I always liked going to musical events, but more so now. 
And festivals allow us not just to see the band that we know and love, but also experience new bands all with one low ticket price. And so I think that festivals allow all those things to happen. At the same time, you have to realize that cities benefit from festivals as well. Cities are getting a signature event. They are getting something where they get to hang their hat on and display their city as being a bright, shiny, fun, and exciting place. Now, do you think cities have started to rethink putting up permanent structures and started to push more in the direction of festivals? Or do you think cities are still pretty married to this idea of, hey, let's do another convention center, let's do a museum, let's do a stadium? I certainly think that festivals are something that cities are more interested in and thinking about a cultural policy to address the festivalization, the increase of of interest in festivals. But at the same time, it is I'm trying to make the argument against the built structure, the concrete culture that uh, what the head of London's Design Museum calls the edifice complex that we have, I think is a hard sell. And certainly the response to my op-ed has been a sense of shock that anyone would propose stopping, (laughs) pausing, uh, building our museums and, and and convention centers. And have you heard the kind of pushback of, you know, if you go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, if you go to the Carnegie Museum of Art, if you go to the L.A. County Museum of Art, these places are crowded and a lot of people, they're clearly draws and people want to be there. So then how do you say, oh, well, you shouldn't have spent money on this. This was a poor investment. You should have put up some tents instead and had a festival. Well, this is why in science we like to have a sample size larger than one. (laughs) (laughs) No, I certainly think that it's uh, true that that museums are fantastic draws. And I think that many of them, I have very warm feelings when I think about going to the Whitney or to MoMA in New York City. And certainly some of the responses that I've gotten is, yes, let's tear down museums and uh, just rely on street artists (laughs) for our art. And I certainly don't think that that's the case. I'm certainly not saying that we should tear down museums. What I do think is that we can put a a healthy pause on them and rethink our, our strategy for urban culture. Jonathan Wynn is an assistant professor of urban and cultural sociology at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's the author of the book Music City and the op ed Why Cities Should Stop Building Museums and Focus on Festivals, which appeared on the website The Conversation. Jonathan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. One city that has always marketed itself as fun now finds itself on the rise because of the sort of businesses that are coming to town. To many Americans, Reno conjures up images of old school casinos, but it's going through a transformative moment. Tesla has landed in Reno, so is Amazon. And as Julia Ritchie reported for us a few months back, easy money is about to become associated more with tech than with slots. On its surface, Reno still looks and sounds like a casino town. There's the neon pink and green skyline of its aging mega casinos, the slot and poker machines inside most every grocery and liquor store, and the all-you-can-eat sushi buffets. Peel away that top layer, though, and a newer Reno emerges, one with craft breweries, music halls, coffee shops, and a public art collection that rivals a city the size of Oakland. Probably the biggest misperception is that people don't really know what the new Reno really looks like now. 
That's Mike Kazmierski, president of the Economic Development Authority of Western Nevada, or EDON. He's helped woo more than 100 tech-oriented and advanced manufacturing companies to the region in the last few years. But he thinks too many people still see Reno as a sleepy gaming spot in the middle of the desert. While casinos are still a major presence... We're at about 8%, actually less than 8% of our economy now is in gaming, and most people don't realize it's that small. It's still a very important part of our economy, and it's a wonderful addition to all the other things we have going on here. But I'll tell you, it's our very strong entrepreneurial ecosystem that is really helping us see a rebirth in this region. Kazmierski's agency predicts the region will add 50,000 new jobs to the area in five years, a stat that inspires as much hope as it does anxiety. Housing and education are the top two obstacles to attracting more top-tier companies, says Kazmierski. Nevada typically appears in the bottom of most education rankings, and Washoe County, where Reno is, has a severe overcrowding problem coupled with teacher shortages. Cool. So yeah, we're in the main space of the Reno Collective. This is kind of where uh, everyone who works from laptops kind of chooses where they want to work. And Colin really Loretz flexible. is the founder of the co-working space called The Collective in downtown Reno. Like any shared office geared toward young startups, the vibe is chill. The Smashing Pumpkins is piped softly through a sound system while people pound away at laptops or fix some coffee at the communal Keurig. Loretz's ascension as Reno's local startup champion began in the fiery ashes of the recession when he was laid off from his software development job in 2009. The goal was really to like, how do we not move to San Francisco? How do we try to just like carve out a little bit of the culture that you'd find in San Francisco, in Reno, and start to develop that culture here instead. So Loretz and his business partner launched their first space, which has 120 members and occupies two floors of a high-rise in a part of town that's now called Startup Alley, just a few blocks from those dinosaur casinos. What we see now is people are moving here from the Bay Area or cities like Austin, Portland, things like that. So um, we're seeing just like cost of living chasing people out. Lorette says Reno's reputation is changing, thanks to new companies like the electric car maker Tesla and Switch Data Center moving in. But it's still a long way from Silicon Valley. Not that that's been a deterrent to Tesla. The company is building a $5 billion battery factory on the outskirts of town to power the cars and homes of the future. In a rare glimpse inside its secure facility in March, company officials showed off a few of their home energy storage units already in production. You can actually see over here, this is a, a really good example of a power pack installation. So this would be like, like the utility a, a scale. Use. Exactly, yeah. yeah. The company was lured to the region thanks to its low regulatory, low tax environment and $1.3 billion in tax incentives. Even without tax breaks, Reno is still drawing new blood, including Julie Arsenault, who relocated from San Francisco about three months ago. You know, some of the things that I was really concerned about, like one, am I committing professional suicide <laughs> by moving up to Reno? Like, could I find a job up here um, if I needed to? And, you know, what would that look like? What, what do the career opportunities look like up here? She'd been visiting Reno and Lake Tahoe nearby to ski and swim, but took several years to think it over before finally pulling the plug and moving. She now works out of the Reno Collective for a marketing firm in the Bay Area and is getting ready to launch her own startup, a women's underwear subscription service called Panty Drop. San Francisco is only getting more crowded. It's only getting more expensive. Um, and so I think if you like to do stuff outdoors or if you want, you know, if you want to be close to tech, because you still are actually very close to tech here, but you want something that's a little bit smaller, um, 
I think it's a really, really good option. Not that she doesn't miss certain aspects of the Bay Area. <laughs> I mean, this is kind of funny, but like I would love a place like around here where I could get a kale salad for lunch. <laughs> There's no vegan or like vegetarian restaurants in Reno. There's just, there's no, I feel like there's not as much like kale salad. And there's not one on every block. Arsenault says her rent is just a fraction of what she was paying in the Bay Area and for a much bigger place. But not everyone is as positive on the tech infusion, especially those who've seen Reno's boom and bust cycles over the last few decades. This is a great little space. And I've been using this for storage for years and years. But here's the, uh, see, so I have access to a backyard and a front yard. Margie Hicks has lived in Reno for 40 years and rents a two-bedroom, one-bath house in Midtown, rapidly becoming one of the city's trendiest neighborhoods. With home prices on the rebound, she noticed for sale signs popping up in front of houses on her block this year. In March, she found out the owner of her house plans to sell, too. And it seems to me like the people that are saying, talking about Midtown are talking about the youth. We'll get the youth down here. Well, what about us, you know, older people that have maintained this neighborhood all these years? You know, there has to be a place for us, too. Hicks welcomes the younger people moving into her neighborhood, lured by Reno's improved economic outlook, but worries she may lose her place. We've been here for a long time, and we've paid our taxes, and we've done our dues when Midtown was just... South Virginia Street, we were here working on making it a nicer neighborhood. One of her favorite features of the house is the little garden out front, which was nothing more than dirt and weeds when she moved in six years ago. She says this year she's only putting in cabbage because it takes 45 days to grow. Enough turnaround in case she'll need to go elsewhere. For Innovation Hub, I'm Julia Ritchie in Reno. On our Facebook page, we've got more about the housing squeeze in Reno. That's at facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. Coming up, sometimes people try to make you feel important, even if you're not. And sometimes they drop the pretense. So in Lyft, it was like really obvious they were stuck up on this third floor and they even had like a separate entrance to their office as the rest of the company had on the first two floors. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller and this is Innovation Hub. One obvious consequence of financial divides and opportunity divides is that we start to separate ourselves physically. We live in different parts of town, we send our kids to different schools, But it's also possible that if you're close enough to an elite world, even if you're not part of that world, you just might be able to wedge your way in. In 2013, a bunch of staffers at the ride-sharing company Lyft were either in denial about their status or they believed it would change. They had taken jobs as customer service reps, tiny salaries, lots of monotony, but they wanted to be superstars. A lot of these people that were in this cohort that were the early customer service people you were talking to on the phone and then emailing with with at Lyft were like the most overeducated people for the job you could ever imagine. Like a couple of them had law degrees. Many of them had grad degrees. I think all but one had a bachelor's degree. So, I mean, obviously these were not people that were going to be interested in like answering phones long term. Lauren Smiley is a tech journalist based in San Francisco who writes for Back Channel. 
and she's looked at what happened to those folks. They were pretty clear that they were just constantly scheming to get, like, claw their way up in the company into better paid positions, you know, where they could be a little more creative and actually be a part of the company. If they could claw their way into the inner circle, even though their expertise may have been more liberal arts than coding, they might get stock options and they might really be part of this red-hot industry. But it was not easy. Smiley says they were put up on a separate floor in the lift offices in San Francisco where their chairs kept sliding from one side of the room to the other because the entire floor was slanted. This is a common story you'll hear is that like within the company itself, the sort of the salespeople or the people that are doing customer service are kind of seen as sort of this lower bracket of status within the company. And they're often sort of segregated away from the like the engineers or the designers uh, into their own little room or their own floor. So in Lyft, it was like really obvious they were stuck up on this third floor and they even had like a separate entrance to their office as the rest of the company had on the first two floors. And so they they said to me that actually that was a little bit of a barrier in their attempt to get out of customer service. But once they moved into their office in the Mission District of San Francisco, where they are right now, everyone is just in one big office. And then all of a sudden things were opening up because they were talking to people at their lunch. They could pass, you know, like people in the hallway all the time. And they were really mainstreamed into the like culture of Lyft. And then all of them, as I understand it, like all of that particular group got into other jobs and got out and raises and equity. Well, but as you say in your article, uh, which after all is called Congratulations, We're Moving Your Department to Tennessee, uh, separate entrances, separate floors, that soon gave way to separate states. So, yeah, it seemed that last year, 2015, was a year in which a lot of the startups in San Francisco got big enough that they decided to sort of arbitrage these lower paid jobs to other states. And so you saw companies like Thumbtack, which is a platform on which a small business owner could like ply their trade, like, um, you know, someone who wanted to do landscaping on the side or handyman work or photography for a wedding. So their customer service got sent to Salt Lake City. And I believe Warby Parker, the eyeglass company startup in Brooklyn, Lyft and Eventbrite, which is also located in San Francisco, they all built out their customer service teams in Nashville, Tennessee. Are there states that are the most common or cities that are the most common in terms of getting these almost what you might think of uh, as backroom tech workers, but now they're like other state tech workers? Yeah, they tend to like places that are like college towns that are going to have a lot of early 20s, you know, people with bachelor's degrees that are going to want a first job. And it's going to be alluring to them to work for some, you know, hot startup out of San Francisco. It's kind of a hip job. And what I found, you know, I was trolling through all these like job ads basically on Glassdoor and other uh, just on their own websites, the startup's own websites. 
And it was showing that, like, they really sell the sort of, like, hip factor of, like, oh, be part of a Silicon Valley company where you'll have a snack bar and a ping pong table and, like, you know, just, like, all the accoutrement of a San Francisco tech office. They try to bring that same sort of vibe to their offices in other states as well, which, I mean, to the credit, that that's good that they're, like, you know, trying to get make it more than, like, a phone bank, I guess. But it just seems that... I don't know, to a degree, like the local press there, of course, all jobs are good jobs. And they're like heralding the fact that there are jobs coming into the community. But um, a lot of times it gets kind of wrapped into this like, oh, the growing tech scene of Nashville. This will be a great addition to our growing burgeoning tech scene here. The fact that Lyft is opening this place. And I think we're going to hire to the tune of 400 people there. When really, it's the people that are here in San Francisco who did those jobs here that are like, Mm -hmm. these are like sort of the lower level jobs in the company. You're never really going to move up or outside of, you know, customer service. Maybe you'll become a manager within customer service. Well, and you're never going to meet. I mean, presumably, you may not ever meet the CEO or the CFO. or I mean, you're not going to meet those people at lunch because they're in California. Exactly. And I mean, the companies, too, I mean, there's a little bit of a like regional is some people are like, you know, it's a little like elitist to be like, oh, you're only ever going to get talent in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is obviously not true. And, you know, I talked to the one of the founders, the co-founders of Thumbtack, and he was so impressed by the level of people um, and hires that they could do in Salt Lake City. Hmm. And it, it seems like people that, yes, if they were in San Francisco, these are probably the same people that would be able to sort of wrangle their way into a company and move up. But, like, I think that the same opportunity does not exist when this whole division of the company is peeled off and put in a satellite office. One of the things that I was really torn about when I was reading your article was the notion of, okay, well, if you're going to pay somebody $35,000, maybe they should live in a place where you can buy a nice house for $250,000. It's terrible to pay somebody $35,000, have them live in the San Francisco area, look around and realize they need seven roommates in a one-bedroom apartment, you know, to make a go of it. So in some sense, maybe putting lower-paying jobs in states with a lower cost of living allows people to have a nicer life. But then the other side of it is you're basically ghettoizing those jobs and you uh, those people are not going to interact, as we were saying, with the higher up people at the company, nobody's ever going to get noticed, you know, at lunch or at a presentation or whatever. And nobody's ever going to say, wow, that person has potential. Someday they could be a vice president. Let me give them an opportunity. That's never going to happen. Exactly. And I mean, these companies, they do see this as almost the more humane thing to do after a while. I mean, they live here. They know what the rent is in San Francisco. And just like we're in this ridiculous inflated market right now because we don't have enough housing. It's like an epidemic here. (laughs) And so the rent is just, I mean, it's now the most expensive in the United States, even over New York. And so they know they are putting people in a really tough position by paying them these like lower amounts at the tech company. So they do sell it as actually I mean Lyft was the best example I thought because not they didn't just build out a team in another city they brought the existing customer service people into a room and told them their jobs were going to Nashville That's and they could crazy, either follow, follow their job to Nashville or leave and I think a couple went but the vast majority you know just left 
I think it just comes to like these companies are not going to pay more than thirty five thousand a year for these jobs. Like they themselves are kind of you know digging in their heels and mm-hmm. you, you know refusing to pay more for these jobs. You know it's really hard to make it for on thirty five k a year here. That's that's more or less what I was making as a cub reporter when I first came here in my twenties, and that was like I was not saving money. You know, and this was in like two thousand and seven. And so now with like the rent being probably double what it was at that point, I just I can't even imagine. Are there other jobs that companies are moving out of the San Francisco area apart from customer service, which is um, mostly what you've focused on? Do you see this moving up to higher wage jobs as well? Well, what's happened and I think what these, you know, um, sort of the economic development types in these other um, cities that they're going to are hoping for is that this is like a foot in the door. Right. I said in my story that I think that these towns almost have the same mentality as the early Lyft customer service service reps and that they see this as a foot in the door, just get in there, show your stuff, and then (laughs) hopefully with time they'll build out more operations in your town and they'll actually move more highly skilled work to your town and better paid work to the town. And that's actually what a lot of them said. You know, I talked to like business reporter in Nashville and some economic development people in Salt Lake City and they both saw it in that way. Like just it's great that they're putting like a flag in the sand and then hopefully with time they will build out more work. And we're seeing that to a certain degree. I think Zendesk, they set up in Madison, Wisconsin, and they have their customer service there, but they also hired on engineers very early in the game Mm -hmm. from Madison, Wisconsin. They're continuing to work out of the office there. When you move, you know, certain kinds of jobs, right, obviously jobs that tend to be sort of non-technical jobs out of New York, out of the San Francisco area, is what you're doing making uh, those cities, uh, San Francisco and New York, more homogenous, more sort of just for the people who really have a ton of money, the elite? How do you sort of view this move and the effect on the places where these people actually aren't going to be anymore? So this is like the biggest raging battle going on in San Francisco right now over the last couple years. We are just like in the middle of this almost like just battle for the city's identity right Mm. now in this latest tech boom. Um, It's just there's not enough housing here. So it literally becomes kind of a zero sum game where like there's, you know, you have people that can pay this amount of rent or there's people that can pay a lower amount of rent and landlords realize that. And so it's just there's been an exodus um, recently in the last few de- few years of people who, once they lose a rent control department, just are no way going to be able to play, pay market rate in this city anymore during this tech boom. And so we're seeing all sorts of losing diversity and other, you know, other industries or people who don't work in tech, they're having to move, you know, f- to the far burbs of, you know, the Bay Area or even further away. Even just in, in my circles and journalist circles, a lot of people have sort of given up on the Bay Area and have gone to cheaper places across the country to continue mm. doing journalism. Because it's just like no one can compete with, you know, a starting salary at $130,000 at Facebook for an engineer. And it's like the whole economy is now like uh, kind of kowtowing to that to that income bracket. 
Lauren Smiley writes for Back Channel. She's the author of the article, Congratulations, We're Moving Your Department to Tennessee. We will link to that article and to more of her articles at our website, innovationhub.org. Lauren, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no problem. A while back, we asked you to contact us if you work for a tech company, but not in the city where your company is headquartered. One of the voicemails we got was from Rob. He lives outside Cleveland, and he's in sales. He's worked for a couple of Bay Area tech companies in the last few years, and he asked that we not use his last name. One of those companies, he said, understood that the entire world does not live on Pacific time. We had on a regular basis, we would have a for the sales group, which was a couple hundred people, we would have a sales call where we would talk about what's going on and new enhancements to the products that were coming out. And, and they would roll the times of those calls throughout the clock to recognize that not everybody was on Pacific Coast time. Not everybody was existing three hours ahead of East Coast time. We would have them in the middle of the night sometimes so that people in Japan wouldn't have to get up in the middle of the night for these calls. To Rob, and to everyone he knew who worked outside of headquarters, varying the time of the calls said a lot. It gave people across all those different time zones the sense that they were just as important, and their time was just important, and their good night's sleep was just important, and their time with their family was just as important as it was for the people who lived in San Francisco. Then Rob shifted to a newer company, which he thought at the time had a lot of potential, but their approach was super different. He says they expected employees to answer calls until 9 or 10 East Coast time because the folks in California were still at work. And it got worse. You know, they would have a meeting, and all the folks in the office in San Francisco would get together to have this meeting, and they would forget to dial into the conference line. So all of the people outside of San Francisco could also be in that meeting, virtually speaking. I mean, it was just, it wasn't intentional, but we were such afterthoughts in, in the running of this company. You can always tell us your story at facebook.com slash innovationhubradio or email us innovationhub at wgbh.org. We've got all of today's stories, including our discussion about how the coasts are pulling away from the heartland on iTunes and on SoundCloud. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Schickerts. We also had production help from Jonathan Gang. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe. PRI. Public Radio International.